Good morning, everyone. That's for us to bow in prayer as we uh, approach God's word. Lord, I pray that as we spend some time looking at this passage of Jeremiah, that you would speak clearly, Lord, to our hearts. Lord, what is written there is clear. So we pray that you would remind us, Lord, of the truth that you spoke to Jeremiah on that day, Lord. So come and speak to us, we pray. Open our hearts so that we can receive the message that you would have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14 onwards. Actually, verse 14 and 15 were already preached on by Pastor Brent. He was, although he was preaching on pretty much the same words from an earlier section in Jeremiah. So what I'd, I'd like to do as we start is I would like to give us a little overview and a recap of where we have been the last four weeks. And then I'll launch into my message. So you'll remember that on the first week of Advent we looked at hope. The fact that the Lord is our righteousness. We looked through the various history of the kings of Judah And pretty much, as the kings followed God, so the people followed God. And if the kings were evil, the people followed the king in their evil ways. Yet God, in the midst of this declaration of judgment on his people, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. We heard that Sunday, the great message of hope, that Jesus is the righteous branch, who is from the line of David and who reigns as king, who comes and announces his plan of justice and righteousness, and who is himself the Lord, our righteousness. The next Sunday, we had another feast, the, sermon, uh, the second sermon in, Ad, uh, in Advent about peace, talking about the surprising ways of God. We read from the book of Consolation, which comes in between the judgments declared on jo- Judah and Israel and the execution of that judgment, which comes later through the Babylonians, where God promises that he will restore the fortunes of Judah. He will rise up for them, a priest from among the people, who would have the right to come and approach God. And from this person who himself would have the right to stand before God, we see the picture of Christ, our Saviour, our great and high priest. The next Sunday, Charles got a call late, and he got given the sermon on joy. And I don't remember what this sermon was about, but it was something to do with joy. (laughs) Yahweh's joy is on the horizon... The promise of the, old, the new covenant is, like, is nothing like the old one. Now, what was it exactly? All I remember it was, it was in Jamaican colours. Can you remember that? <laughs> Christmas in Jamaica. Joy. Jesus. So Yahweh makes a new covenant for his people. Actually, do you know what happened during the week? I was like, uh, I wanted to do a recap. And I was like, what was that song about joy about? I don't remember what the acronym meant. It was Jesus something something. So Jesus, does anyone remember? Jesus has overcome sin and death for you. 
Okay, Jesus is Jesus J overcome O for you. Okay, Jesus joy. Okay, I don't have any fancy acronyms this week. And as we come this week, we're going to be talking about love, the last candle that we're doing today. And I would like to frame it in the sense of talking about love, not a passing emotion, but the roaring blaze of God's covenant faithful love. So we come again now to the book of Consolation, as it's called, chapters 30 to 33, which falls between the first half of the book, 1 to 29, which is pretty much God just declaring judgment on his people. Judgment for a variety of things, but in, part, in, in summary, God declaring judgment on them for being an adulterous people, and God declaring a judgment on them for being an idolatrous people. And then later on, after the book of Consolation, you see the actual execution of that judgment. And here we come today to the final bit which God will speak in this book of Consolation. Now, I will agree that this section of the Old Testament is very, it's quite vague to me. It's like the story of the Bible is very, very linear up to David, Solomon. Then the kingdom splits, then there's who's the good king, who's the bad king. And then it just kind of goes into this blurry category. And then it's like, which prophet? When was he speaking? Which kingdom? What does this mean exactly? Okay, and then you just kind of skip over the rest of the Old Testament. And then the books become long and difficult. And it's like, I'm just a bit lost. And then suddenly it's back at Jesus. like, okay, good. Good to go. (laughs) The problem is, is that there's a conspiracy. There is what I call the Sunday school story gap which it kind of ends after Solomon and then it kind of like, there's like Jonah, the story of Jonah, and then pretty much it's just silent until Jesus. The problem is is that there's a lot of passages of the Bible here, which is a chunky section of the Bible, which is unfamiliar to us. And it took me some time just to figure out what was going on. So what has happened is, and I'm just reiterating the summary that we received in our first sermon, is that Israel, up to this point, we usually follow the story. It was under uh, Saul and then David, and then a couple of other kings who came in short bits and pieces. But pretty much under Solomon's son, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Now the summary of the book of um, Kings and pretty much Chronicles is... All the kings on Israel's side were bad. Okay? I know it's hard to remember that sometimes when you're going through the text. But pretty much everyone on Israel was bad. And on the side of Judah there was 20 kings and about 40% were good. Okay? Now on the side where everyone was bad, God had given them repeated warnings. And finally God came and took the people of Israel into exile by the Assyrians. Now, that part of the story happened about 100, 150 years prior to this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. Pretty much everyone in Israel was bad. The kings were bad. There was one which maybe he was good, bad, but he was pretty much bad. On Judah's side, there was a few good kings, okay? And actually, they ended up being maintained in the land a little bit longer. So there was 20 generations of kings spanning about 350 years, And actually, Jeremiah was born during the time when the last good king was in Israel. The last good king's name was Josiah. And literally what happened is, one day they were cleaning up the temple and they discovered the law again. And with the discovery of the law, 
What Josiah did is he did this massive cleanup of the land. They destroyed all the idols. He tried to reinstate the purposes of God's law. And Jeremiah likely was present during this period of time. In fact, what happened is, is Josiah called all the people of Judah to an assembly where they did a covenant renewal. There's a covenant renewal coming up, by the way, next year. Okay, So it's not an unbiblical topic. And then what happened is, is that Josiah instituted the greatest Passover celebration that has, ever been ta- that has ever taken place. In fact, we are told in the Bible that one hadn't happened like that since the days of the judges and the kings. It was a fantastic ceremony of Passover. Nevertheless, with all of this renewal of God's people in the, in the kingdom of, of Judah, nevertheless... The kingdom under the wicked sons of Josiah and those put in place by the Babylonians, they would slip away into decay and their wholehearted cleanup of the kingdom would decay and show their real wickedness of heart. Jeremiah therefore issues warnings of impending judgment. Now remember that in the collective memory of the people of Judah, they would remember the time when Israel fell under the Assyrians, having repeatedly received the warnings and and callings of God to repent. It's about as long ago as us remembering the First World War. About that long ago. There are still a few, a handful of people, maybe they're dying off now, that are still veterans of that war. And this is, there was still some collective memory. They would have in their, the memory of the people that God issued warnings constantly to them. And finally, he did expel them from the land. Now, Judah themselves, they have rejected the warnings of God, finally. And now, at this point in the passage, Judah is under siege. The Babylonians are around the city. This is one of the last few cities as Judah and a couple of other cities which are about to fall. The Babylonian army in all of its might is surrounding the city and basically starving them out. The, is, the, the people of, the, of Jerusalem have destroyed houses to build a massive bulwark and, and a strong wall around and they're just trying to hold out as long as possible. So from this vantage point one starts to ask what about the covenants What about the promises that God made to his people? Is this the end of all of his covenant promises? Jeremiah now hears again from the Lord in this final revelation in the book of Consolation, which is nestled between the accusations and proclamations of judgment that they were adulterous and an idolatrous people, and finally the expulsion from the land. And as they hid in the courtyard of the guards, as the city is under siege, and as bodies lay strewn in the city, God speaks in grace to his people once again. Those under siege, receiving the just punishment for their sins, receive a comforting word from the Lord. Verse 17. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man that stands before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn burn grain offerings, or to present sacrifices. J.H. Wright Wright writes in his commentary 
The exiles have now endured war, amputated fears, splintered families, and the travail of a shattered world. Now, by the power of the word, God empowers these broken, shipwrecked people to imagine a future which seems not at all possible. The Book of Comfort seeds all expressions of hope as grounded in God's mercy, love, and sovereignty. Hope is not the result of human virtue, human ingenuity, human grit, or human imagination. Nor does it derive success from military might, technological prowess, or even the elimination of scars and the memory of loss. Hope is God's gracious gift to a suffering people who are at breaking point. It is a promise when life is not expected. And in fact, it is a promise of life when it is not even deserved. Hear the enemies at the gates. Feel the, tre- the terror and horror in your heart as you see this invincible army surround the city. Feel the hunger in your heart as we are led to believe by the book of Lamentations that people finally, under the strength of the siege against Judah, reverted to cannibalism to, 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 to uh, assuage their hunger. This is precisely the opposite of what it looks like. God is saying, David will never fail to have a man sit on the thrones and the Levitical priests will never fail to have a man who continually burns offerings. But isn't this exactly what it looks like is happening? David's line and the city of Judah is being destroyed. The temple is about to be destroyed and razed to the grounds by the Babylonians. Why is God speaking these words of comfort now when all seems to be lost? In fact, the absolute opposite. Verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. We have a repeated phrase. God himself says, thus says the Lord. The first words are repeated out of God's mouth. Thus says the Lord. It's like when you speak to your children and they're not listening to you. And you keep repeating and finally you get their attention and you say, Dada says because that's what the vocabulary I use at the moment. Dada says, or how about when you're in a conference call and you don't really know who's speaking and someone tries to get their, their opinion out, so finally they'll announce their name and their title. You know, this is Jonathan Ebenezer, you know, the director of engineering, then everyone quietens down and then they... they I'm not the director of engineering. But there's a double emphasis. God is speaking and then he announces himself, I am speaking, so that people will hear his voice. And this double emphasis is God's proclamation of hope into the darkness. Even though they have strayed away, even though they have ignored the prophets and the directions of the kings, and that massive wholehearted turning back to God and that repentance. Now one would ask, where is their repentance now? And that massive covenant reveal when all the people of Judah were, were called together. Where is that heart of repentance? Surely God could have thrown that in their face. Time and again, their history was one of a story of rebellion. And what was God's story? One of patience and warning. And actually, to my knowledge, I don't know if there's any places where they called out to God for help and God didn't respond with help. God in grace comforts them again, absolutely undeserving as they are. And God reassures them of the steadfastness of his promise. Verse 20. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, 
so that the day and night no longer come at their appointed times. And we're just going to break there. So what's happening here? God sets up an if-then. Okay? If you can do something, okay, whatever that thing is, then something else will follow. God places his fidelity of his covenant keeping with his people to David and to the Levites based on the fact that the people cannot break his covenant that he made with someone else. Essentially, you cannot break my covenant with the day and the night. Each day, the night rolls around again, the day rolls around again. And the fact that you can't stop the regularity of that proves that you have no way of me breaking my covenant with David and Levi. In fact, what God was reiterating here was his covenant with Noah. For in Genesis chapter 8, we see that God, having judged the world by a flood, promised consistency and regularity of seed time and harvest, cold and warmth, although we wish that the cold and warmth cycle in Quebec wasn't so regular, summer and winter, and day and night. So essentially what God says, if you have the strength to break my covenant that I made with Noah, then maybe the covenant with David and Levi There's the possibility that these can be broken. But since you cannot, this is what logically follows. Because you don't have the ability to break the covenant that I had with Noah, to keep the day and night cycle, to keep the seasons in place, to keep winter and summer and warmth and cold, since you don't have the ability to break that, you cannot break my covenant with David and Levi, regardless of what it looks like right now. So, I'll admit to you, the first time that I read this passage, I was reading through, probably in the usual kind of blur that I usually read the Old Testament. And I read through, okay, so if you can break the covenant with the day and the night, then my covenant with David will fail. I'm like, the covenant with David can fail? There's a possibility that it can happen. But I kind of missed the point there. So what's the logic? We've stated that. God can never break his covenant with the day and the night. So the two covenants will stay in place. Maybe this is what the writers in Lamentations had in mind when they wrote these famous and wonderful words, not of lament at all. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Each day we live, each day we see the created order maintaining its repeated testimony to the fact that God remains faithful to his covenants. We know we have no strength to break God's covenants and God's covenants will stay strong and secure. Now my people, even though punishment is coming, I remain faithful to my words. I remain faithful to my covenants. Verse 21. Yes, I rushed ahead of myself a little bit, getting too excited. Then my covenant with David. So if you have the ability to break my covenant with the day and the night, then my covenant with David, my servant, and the covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. 
Now I wanted to give you an example because this is the main point of this sermon. This is the main point of this passage that God reassures his people. So I wanted to give you an example from my world. Okay? So I'm sorry if this isn't your world, but I'll try my best. How many people program here? Oh my goodness, this is a bad example. <laughs> Illustrations are supposed to illustrate something. <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm going to be teaching you about programming rather than this teaching you about God's covenant. But anyway. All right, so a basic programming construct. And if then. Okay, so if the thing in the, con- uh, the condition is true, then the bit which is between the if statements will be executed. So let me give you an example. If 1 plus 1 equals 2... Is this true? Yes. Then deposit $10 in the bank account. Okay? Pretty logical, right? Let me give you another example. If your password is correct, then let you enter the online banking uh, website, for example. Okay? Pretty straightforward. And if the thing is not true, then you don't get to deposit $10. You don't get to enter into the thing. Now, one thing that can happen is imagine if we change that. So it said, if 1 plus 1 equals 3, then deposit $10. Now, we all know that 1 plus 1 can never equal 3, right? So what happens is, is that we could never, ever deposit $10. Now, modern computers are pretty fantastic, even old computers. And when you translate this program into machine code, which a computer can actually understand, sometimes the compiler will give you a warning, And what it will say is is that you've written some program, but you know this bit that says deposit $10? It's impossible for you to get there. Okay? What it will say, unreachable code. This line of source code, deposit $10, when you have that condition, 1 plus 1 equals 3, you will never, ever, ever be able to get to this part of the code. Okay? I hope you're starting to join the dots, see where this is going. (laughs) If... You can break God's covenant with day and night, okay? Then the covenant with David and the Levites Levites are breakable, right? Now the thing is, is that first bit, which is here, you can break God's covenant with day and night. It can never happen. Never, never, never. So even though this thing is written down, even though God said it, it can never happen. God's covenant, God's covenants are unbreakable, okay? That's the point of this passage. This is the comfort that God gives his people in the midst of the siege and the people surrounding the city. All right, so let's continue. So God made a covenant with David, as we, say, we saw in uh, verse 17. For this is the, what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priest ever fail to have a man to sit before me, continually to offer burnt offerings and burn grain offerings and present sacrifices. So David, would ha- David was given a covenant that God would build him a house and give him a perpetual and eternal kingly line from his descendants. And the covenant with Levi was that they would always have someone ministering before the Lord. So isn't this precisely what it looks like is happening? So in chapter 52 of uh, the Babylonian forces finally enter Jerusalem. The city is burnt to the ground. The palace is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The people 
are decimated and scattered. The promise of the land, the people are expelled from it. The promise of God's presence, God's punishment rains down from heaven and they are uh, dispelled and taken away from the land. Now wait a second, you might say, is that this great people is no longer a great people. These people that had a land no longer are a land. Doesn't this sound a little bit like the covenant to Abraham? God didn't say anything about that, did he? Maybe he's breaking that covenant. But what you will find if you look in the next verse is that God does something amazing. Verse 22, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. What God does now is that he reassures them of his covenant faithfulness to another covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham. And he ties the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation and to give him a people and to call those people his own people. He shows the fulfillment of that via the two covenants that look like they're in jeopardy, the covenant to David and the covenant to the Levites. Hear the terms which are reminiscent of the Abrahamic covenant. God will make the descendants of David and of Levi as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sands on the seashore. What can these people do in response as they hear the sounds of battle and siege? Surely you would think God would choose a more opportune time to speak to his people, to declare his promises and his faithfulness to them, and they would listen. I mean, just imagine if God had created a perfect world with all of their physical needs and spiritual needs met. Imagine if there was such a place where they had always had the reassuring presence of God daily. Surely in that theoretical word, if God had spoken something, they would have taken him at his word. Surely they would have listened positively and said, God is trustworthy, and they would have listened. Oh, the condition of the human heart. And yet, as they stand in real depths of physical peril, God reminds them of his promise. This passage, in fact, is very, very similar to one which is, preached, which is uh, covered in chapter 31. If you look in chapter 31, I think from verse 35 or so onwards, there is a passage which is very, very similar to this. So what we see is that in this very last declaration of consolation that God gives through Jeremiah to the people who are rightly under his punishment, God reiterates his covenant faithfulness to his people. Verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose, so they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. God is aware that as his judgment is falling, his name is being maligned. It's most likely that this maligning And this criticism of God is coming from the people as they are seeing the city crumble. The forces that surround. Judah here is one of the last strongholds of the whole... uh, Jerusalem is one of the last strongholds of Judah and is rapidly falling. 
And even though God is using the, Bap- the Babylonians to chastise his people and take them into exile, he will not have his name tarnished. He will not have people pour contempt on the fact that he is covenantally faithful. In fact, what we will see later on in the book of Jeremiah, if you have a look, is that God declares judgment on the Babylonian people. In fact, God holds their contempt of him in contempt. He, they think that he, they will no longer be called a nation, that God will not be faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. How wrong they are. In fact, long after the Babylonian Empire had fallen, Judah as a kingdom and Israel was re-established. Let's see what God continues in verse 25. This is what the Lord says. And he repeats again that same logic. He wants to hammer this, hammer this, hammer this. I think this is the third time he's saying this. One time in chapter 31 and two times in chapter 33. If I have not made my covenant with the day and night and establish the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the point here? It's the same point that God is making. God is repeating himself. So if you think I'm being repetitive, it is because the passage is repetitive. God has made his covenant with the day and night, and has established the laws of heaven and earth. God's faithfulness has been on display for centuries by this point. In fact, something so routine as the day coming again is something that we almost treat as something abstracted from God. You know, time will heal things. You know, the, the days just kind of roll by. No, these things are held in place because God is faithful to his covenant. In fact, we know through the New Testament is that the whole universe holds together because God holds it together by his powerful word. God hasn't rejected his covenant and he reiterates to Jacob. In fact, what is mentioned here is that I will not reject the the descendants of Jacob. God reiterated his covenant to Jacob saying that his descendants would dwell in the land. And what's the final verse of this passage? For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. In the very moment of God's severe judgment... God speaks words of comfort. How gracious is that? Here are the wonderful words of God's promise. I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Just imagine those words come just before these words. The next bit in Jeremiah chapter 40. While Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon and all his armies and all the kingdoms and the peoples in the empire he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem. So imagine the size of that army. And all its surrounding times, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, and you will surely be captured and given into his hands. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak to you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. God's punishment is absolute. He's going to carry out his punishment on his people. Yet, just prior to this, God issues words of comfort. 
Now we see that as we come to this passage where God is reiterating his absolute covenant faithfulness, it logically leads from the passage where he's talking about Jesus being the righteous branch. This righteous branch which is raised, raised up out of the stump of David. Righteousness and justice, priestly and kingly qualities. Now where does that bring us to now, today, here in preparations for Christmas? The one who is comfort himself, the one towards whom all of these promises point, is Jesus himself. And now we look back at a historic moment, even the birth of a baby. True, we don't see the absolute and full fulfillment of the king of David sitting in power, ruling all the nations. We don't see with our own eyes the king who ever live, uh, the priest who ever lives to make intercession for his people. But we perceive these things by faith. We see him, the one who was promised of old. Now, is any of this relevant as we sit here today? I would like to say, yes, it is. Because the fact is, is that there is a larger story going on in history. God is the only one who can make promises and make them come to pass over generations and generations and years and thousands of years. There is a story which is far greater than our stories as we sit here today. And my question to us this morning is, how relevant is our story to the real story of what is happening in history? How relevant are our lives with respect to the real story of God's history? For in the fullness of time, that great and mighty one in covenant faithfulness sent a little baby through the work of his spirit, the one who was promised long ago, born of the kingly line of David. But what's this I hear? He wasn't born of the Levites, so surely God broke his promise there. But no, we learn from the book of Hebrews that he was from a priestly line that was far greater. He had come to to be an altogether greater line of king priests to whom Abraham, whom the covenant was initially given, paid homage to. And in fact, whom the whole Levitical priesthood gave homage through, through Abraham. And he comes from an internal line of priests, a superior line of priests, just as the covenant over which he presides is far greater than the one given to the Levites. We see one who for his birthday present received gold, a kingly gift, and incense, a priestly gift. Now whilst John the Baptist was in the womb of Elizabeth, she exclaimed these words, Blessed is she, speaking of Mary the Virgin, Blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment in what is spoken of her from the Lord. Essentially what she is saying is, blessed are you for taking God at his word. And the Virgin Mary responds in kind, saying this, from Luke Luke chapter 1, part of the Magnificat. God... He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their throne and lifted up the humble. I mean, here the the fulfillment of bringing down the Babylonians and bringing up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. Imagine the people that were cannibalizing their fellow citizens to, to survive. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Now here the coming of Christ in the context of covenant and promise fulfillment. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, 
just as he promised our ancestors. Mary saw as she carried Christ in her, in her, uh, in her body that the, bring, that the sending of Christ was in fact God's covenant faithfulness to his promises. So even though Judah stood there on that day with the whole city crumbling around us, we have the historical record that God remained faithful to his promises. Now you would wonder, why did God need to issue such punishment on his people? And I think these words can be found in the book of Lamentations. There was purpose in the punishment finally. Because what did God's people finally say? In the book of Lamentations we have some poems which recall the destruction of Jerusalem. And in fact, what we have in these sections is we essentially have almost a first-person account personifying the people of Judah, admitting their guilt and their sin before God. And finally, it seems that they have learned their lessons. Having heard about God's promises, they respond with these famous words. Having received the crushing blow of God's righteous and justified wrath, they eventually say, Because of God's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. I will wait for him. That is a declaration of dependence, knowing that God will be faithful. The the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the ones who seek him. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. Doesn't this sound like the absolutely perfect fitting response to those who are waiting for God to be covenantally faithful? Now what I want to do here is as we wrap this to a close is I want to draw you another piece of logic which is used in scripture. It is a bit of logic which is used in Romans. When Paul is emphasizing the importance of faith, the importance of taking God at his word, he says this is why everything depends on faith. The reason why everything depends on faith is because it is grounded in the promise of God. And the reason why that's important is that if things are based on the promise of God, we are ensured that the outcome is guaranteed. Okay? That's the logic which is used in Romans. When God's promise is the basis for our hope, we have absolute certainty that what God says will come to pass. It's guaranteed. We have certainty, as certain as we have the day following the night and the night following the day. Great is thy faithfulness. I will wait on the Lord. Surely they have started to rely finally on God's covenant faithfulness. Hear the words of Zechariah. Praise be to the Lord and God and Father of of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of, of long ago, salvation from our enemy and from the hands of those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies 
and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all of those covenants promised long ago. God did not abandon his people even in the depths of punishment. Jesus' first arrival, even though we don't see the full consummation of all of God's promises, is an absolute point in time historic moment where God's faithfulness is seen once again. It's almost like if we wanted to rephrase this passage for today, you could say it like this. If you can stop me from sending my son, I will not remain faithful to my promises. Now what we know is is that historically, God has sent his son. Therefore, God's promises stand secure and unbreakable. Finally, since God keeps his promises, imagine what a future we have to look forward to even when the full and blazing glory of the Son is revealed. King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal promised king, the everlasting priest, whoever lives to mediate God's presence, the firstborn head from a mighty nation of kings and priests, who is defeated and crushed, the serpent's head. He will be all in all, the blazing glory of our God, our covenant faithful God. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning as we read these words that you remain absolutely faithful to your promises. Help us, Lord, to view our lives, Lord, through the lens of reality, Lord, which is how you view history, that you remain faithful to your covenants, Lord. So now, Lord, I pray that as we wait for you, having sent your Son once and yet having the hope and the certainty and guarantee that Christ our Saviour, King of Kings and Great High Priest will come again. We pray that we would wait patiently and be filled with much joy this, this week, Lord, as we celebrate the fact that you stepped into the darkness and came and were born into history. So fill us with much hope and joy, Lord, as we remember your love, your covenant faithful love. In Jesus' name. Amen.